Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Ocean Matters. I'm Izzy Clark, the producer of this series, and these bonus podcasts are a chance for us to revisit topics and explore extra content from the main episodes. In episode one, we discussed shifting baselines, which is the idea that your measure of what a healthy or normal reef looks like is set from your first diving experience. But that wasn't the case for one of today's guests. I spoke with Rachel Jones, the manager of the Bertarelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme, and Heather Coldway, the head of the programme. Heather kicked things off by telling me about her first experience on a tropical dive. It was the very start of our work on seahorse conservation and my colleague and co-lead of of Project Seahorse at the time, Amanda Vincent, had started a project in the Philippines. And so we went out to this reef where it was really the sort of centre of the seahorse trade and a really important area, which is also the centre of marine biodiversity. To get out on the reef to actually dive was both amazing and shocking because it had been so heavily depleted through fishing, including horrible things like dynamite fishing, that we hardly saw a single fish. I basically remember just finning along the reef, looking in all directions for about 15 minutes and really not seeing any fish at all, which when you visualise a coral reef in your mind, you just think of it teeming with fish. That's honestly quite shocking. So how can you change something like that? It's obviously quite a a bleak situation when you dive in a region and it looks like that. Well, it was a start of what is a good news story in that the community were really mobilised to make change, mainly because they completely depend on the reef and the reef fisheries for their livelihoods. And that's food on a daily basis. If you don't catch fish, then you have nothing to eat or nothing to sell the next day. And working with the community and our amazing team of Filipino biologists and and community organisers, we started up community-managed marine protected areas. And this was no-take zones around these incredible coral reefs where no fishing was allowed and they were managed and monitored by the communities. And going back there several years later, the reefs were regenerating. We were seeing beautiful reef fish. And so when I was diving, say, three to five years later on these reefs, I was surrounded by clouds of fish. And a lot of these I knew were really important food fish. So if you protect an area, if you don't catch and kill the fish inside, then the fish can breed. They're almost like banks or replenishment zones for marine life. And of course, the corals aren't damaged and they can breed and thrive. And all of the other incredible marine life that goes with a coral reef is protected and restored. And on that idea of shifting baselines, Rachel, what was your first diving experience on a reef? Well, the first time I saw a reef was as a child, and I used to spend several summers in the West Indies visiting family when I was a kid. So not diving, but snorkelling. And I vividly remember very healthy, extensive coral reef there. And the coral reefs in the Caribbean are, are quite different from the coral reefs that you'll find in, in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. They look quite different. But then the first time that I did scuba diving on, on a coral reef, I was learning to dive on an island in Malaysia. And I took my, my first hesitant underwater breaths um, on a very shallow fringing reef in a bay, in quite an enclosed bay. And it 
was gorgeous, terrifying because you're learning and you don't really understand what you're doing technically, but absolutely gorgeous. But at the time, I remember they were in the process of, of building a hotel complex on the steep hillside above that bay. And a few years later, that, that reef had gone as well because silt and soils from the hillside had slipped down where the trees had been cut down, um, silted the reef up. That's incredibly difficult for the people who, who manage the tourism in that small island because the reef was the draw for the tourists in the first place. And you're really involved with working in the Chagos Archipelago. So how does that compare, say, to reefs that you saw in your childhood? Yes, yeah, so I first visited the Chagos Archipelago in 2006. And in fact, the reef there was still very much still in recovery from the 1998 bleaching event when, when much of it had been lost. But it still blew my mind because in, in comparison to the extent of the reef was, was much more than, than I'd seen anywhere else before. And there was just this huge biomass, this enormous number of animals which were bigger and behaved differently from 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 anywhere else I'd been, and lots of big old fish, the the groupers and the snappers and the the species that are really the first things that get fished out when when people are fishing on reefs. But there were lots of them, and they were big, they were old, and relatively quite unafraid of people. So that was that was really special. And that's partly due to the fact that the this is a marine protected area. So. Heather, if I could just bring you back in here, what does it mean for a region to have this protected status? It's designating an area of ocean where what you can do in that is controlled. The IUCN, the World Conservation Union, have come up with a range of, of designations to clarify that and what that actually means. And they range from a number one, which is strictly protected where no activities, no extraction, no fishing, no damaging activities or no development are allowed at all, right the way through to designation six, which is basically you can do quite a lot, but it should be sustainable. And so there's categories from one to six with decreasing levels of protection within them. Okay, so we have these different categories, but how important is the size of a marine protected area within that? Well, simply the bigger the better. And we're actually working towards trying to get the 30% of the ocean protected by 2030. And governments had committed to protect 10% of the ocean by the end of 2020. Unfortunately, we're falling short of those targets. But from looking at how do we keep an ocean that functions, that's full of life, that serves all of those people that depend on it and is is conserved in its own right as an, a critically important system for the planet. It drives our weather, it controls climate change and all the amazing things that the ocean does. It, we are, after all, on a, on a blue planet. We do need to have this level of protection and, and protected areas. So when you have the bigger ones, you're basically starting to see entire ecosystems protected. You've got the, the islands, you've got the shallow reefs, you've got the deep water habitats, you've got the seamounts, you've got abyssal plains, you've got deep sea trenches, seagrasses and mangroves, and all of those systems are fully protected and connected. So large marine protected areas are particularly important and particularly special. Also, though, I mean, I would imagine that the bigger they are, the harder they are to manage. So, Rachel, how can you actually protect a marine protected area? It's one of the great challenges. Large, very large in this case, and very remote marine protected areas are immensely challenging 
to cover on the ground or on the sea, as it were, because you can't be everywhere at once. And it's an enormous footprint to try and surveil and to try and keep track of. So technological solutions are very important. And it's something that we are working very hard to support and develop. And I think that that's something that is an exciting frontier for the management of of marine protected areas around the world. But we have to be realistic that not all protected area managers have access to those resources. And, you know, they may be limited to old fashioned rangers in a boat patrolling a protected area and trying to trying to ensure that it's it's integral. I mean, you know, we have to be pragmatic at the end of the day. This is not a protected area with a fence around it. It doesn't have a guarded boundary and the animals inside the protected area are fully free to travel in and outside the area. So marine protected areas can't solve all the problems on their own, but they're an important part of the the patchwork of management we need. Looking to the future, do you think we'll see more marine protected areas across the world? I hope so. I mean, I think we're getting better at understanding what we need because the measurement and the observations are getting more precise. There's a lot of debate about how you best manage very highly mobile animals that are migratory and that that swim immense distances across several uh, different countries' seas to get from A to B, from their feeding grounds to their nesting grounds, in the case of, say, turtles, for example, that cover these immense areas. How do you best protect them? Well, my case is always, you know, think of them as a migratory bird. You can't protect a migratory bird across the entire length of its migration route, but you can offer it refuges that it can stop in along the way that are protected. And that means that overall, you increase its chance of getting from A to B without being intercepted by a by a hunter or, or, or something like that. Yes, I think the science is showing how important marine protected areas are as part of the toolkit for ocean conservation As Rachel said, they don't stand alone and it has to be part of a bigger system. But it's not only the establishment of these protected areas, that's just one step. It's how do you make sure that they're effective and that they're well managed. And the challenges are quite different in different places. But I think the combination of community engagement and and involvement in management the development of tools and technologies and the science, whether that's participatory science done by community members or the sort of some of the higher tech science that you're starting to see emerging from monitoring, you know, 3D photogrammetry and other tools, those combined are all contributing to make our work on marine protected areas more effective and reinforcing the need for more marine protection across the world. And and, and an important idea is that this isn't just down to scientists there are community initiatives as well and everyone can get involved in this i'm frankly we need everyone to get involved with this i think that's a really important point and i think living in the uk and as an island nation and having a network of marine conservation zones it's really important that we connect with the ocean the ocean is fundamentally driving our weather, which we are very happy to talk about, but thinking about how we protect and restore the ocean for fisheries, for tourism, all the wonderful leisure activities that we enjoy with the ocean is incredibly important. And that depends on having a a functional ocean, which requires some of it to be looked after and protected. And that might be around entire ecosystems, or it might be just to save a particular species. And some of those are incredibly special and we really can't lose. 
Thank you to Heather Coldaway and Rachel Jones from the Bertarelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme. That's it for this bonus episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Ocean Matters so you're the first to know when a new episode is out and join us next time where we'll be exploring coral reefs. I'm Izzy Clark and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Bye.